When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Andy, hi. Thanks so much for meeting me today. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Very well. Very well. How are you? Good, thank you. I'm Andy Scanlon, the CEO of Sandbox VR UK and Ireland and the proud owner of the UK's first permanent robotic bartender. Andy, lovely to meet you, but really we're here today to meet Tony. I get that a lot, Tom. Let me go and introduce you to him. I'm here in front of a setup that is kind of what I imagine a bar would look like on the Starship Enterprise. We kind of have this big white table with LED lights and on top of the table we have two robotic arms and those arms are sitting underneath what must be a ceiling of 50 or so bottles of alcohol, everything you'd recognize from sort of Bacardi to Martini and everything else in between. Yes, we have around 60 bottles of alcohol inverted above our two robotic arms. The robot can identify and understand where each of those bottles are located and enable the glasses to be poured a measurement or two following an order from one of our guests. Andy, it's all very slick, all very impressive, but be honest with me. Is it a gimmick? How does the uh, business case stack up here? It's definitely not a gimmick. I mean, we invested six figures into this and we've already seen that payback. Well, I think it's time for a cocktail, Andy. So uh, how do I order? So you can order uh, with Tony through one of these tablets here. Uh, We've got a wide selection of cocktails. You can also make your own cocktails and everything else is automated. Oh, I'm I'm a man of classic taste, Andy. So I think I might just go for a, a good old gin martini. Let's do it. So as you can see here, the two arms have two separate jobs. The arm on the right gets the 100% compostable cup from the back, whilst the arm on the left is now uh, serving itself ice. And from the back, it's getting a mixture of soft drinks or mixers. And then after that, it will look for the alcohol. So as I said, each of the bottles are pre-programmed, so the robot knows where each bottle is. And as you can see, it's getting a measurement from one of the bottles there. And now the lid will close and it will stir it. And now you can see the left arm is pouring into the right arm, which will now present Tom with his drink. And there we go, Tom. All right, let's give it a try. It's not a bad martini, Andy. It's pretty good. So if robots can make a decent cocktail, how else will they change our lives? And what impact will that have on our economy? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fullwood. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. And this week, we're talking about the rise of the robots. First, we visit South Korea, the country at the forefront of robot adoption, to find out where the robot revolution is leading us. 
Then we'll hear why the world should embrace automation. The manufacturers out there cannot find the people. So in order to keep productions with an increasing population in the world, there's actually no other way than automation. And finally, we glimpse into a future where robots move beyond the factory floor. In 2030, if I go shopping, there probably is a robot there helping me to find the products I'm searching for. Alice, Mike, hello. Hey, Tom. Hello. How has everyone been keeping busy this week? Yeah, it's starting to feel like spring in the district. So having recovered from my plague, I took a, a lovely walk around my neighbourhood this weekend. And uh, given how uncharacteristically warm it's been, some of the very first cherry blossoms are starting to bloom. It's a very charming time of year to be based in DC. Good weather here as well. Singapore's rainy season seems to have finally come to a very belated end, which is great. Tom, I have been incredibly excited for this episode for ages. How did you get interested in these questions about automation initially? I'm guessing it wasn't just because you wanted an excuse to drink cocktails while you're on the clock. Well, partly that, but partly, you know, we've been hearing a lot about ChatGPT over the past few months, and there's plenty of discussion out there around how clever chatbots like it might be coming for our jobs. But actually, much of the real activity in automation in recent years has been in robots of the physical variety. So how widespread is the use of robots at the moment? Well, it's worth a point of clarification on this to start with. So most robots, unfortunately, don't look like the humanoid Optimus bot that Elon Musk showed off at Tesla's recent investor day. Traditionally, you're talking about a mechanical arm that sits in a factory or maybe a warehouse and performs a repetitive task like, say, drilling or picking up and putting down an object. And these have actually been around for decades now, but adoption has really started to pick up speed in recent years. So between 2015 and 2021, the stock of industrial robots in America jumped from 175 per 10,000 manufacturing workers to 274, with a similar level of adoption now in Europe as well. And in South Korea, which is really at the cutting edge of robotics, they have four times as many robots per worker in the factories as the West does, about 1,000 per 10,000 workers. And they've also been enthusiastically embracing robots for other purposes too. So I went there to see it for myself. Hello, my name is Airstar. Please touch my screen or say my name if you need assistance. South Korea's embrace of robots is apparent from the moment you step off the plane. Yes, I'll start for guidance now. You can follow me. Arriving at Incheon Airport in the capital, Seoul, visitors are greeted by a semi-humanoid robot on wheels offering directions and assistance. Out in the city, you can get a morning coffee made by a robot barista. And this is Korean-style fried chicken. Not just because of the recipe, but because of the way it's being cooked by a robot. The robotic arm picks up a basket of chicken, slides along a rail, and lowers it into the deep fryer. After a few minutes, it lifts the chicken out, slides it back to the workbench, and alerts the human chef that it's done. This piece of technology is working the fryers at Robert Chicken, a chain with eight restaurants in Seoul. The company plans to expand across the country and is opening in New York City 
this summer. It points to Korea's enthusiasm for robots. Here, there's a generally positive view of what they can contribute to society and the economy. Our robots don't look like humans. They look quite boring, but they do each task very fast and correctly. Ben Jin Kin is the founder and CEO of Wave, a company that makes kitchen robots. His robots automate the food cooking process. They can deep fry, pan fry, bake and boil, keeping the output precise and consistent. The really cool thing about these robots is that when you want to update the recipes, maybe let's say you have like 100 locations in London or Seoul, if you are not using robots, you have to educate each kitchen staff for a few months to update your recipes. But if you are using robots, you just have to update the code in the server, then the whole recipe is updated at the same time right away. He leases them to restaurants and also runs robotic ghost kitchens, which make delivery-only food on a restaurant's behalf. All this helps solve the problem of severe labour shortages in the hospitality industry. Starting from last June, we got a lot of sales contact email that were asking, oh, I saw your robots in the YouTube or on the news. Can we deploy your robots as soon as possible? We cannot hire kitchen staff right now, so we are having a problem. Plus, Benjen says his cooking robots can reduce a kitchen's labour costs by 50%. Automated technology has already proven to make business sense in other industries here in Korea. For instance, robots have helped make the country's car industry and consumer electronics industry more competitive. Now, work is underway to bring automation into other areas of the economy. Doosan Robotics is one of South Korea's two main robot makers. Here at its factory on the outskirts of Seoul, it's developing robots that can assist in surgery, operate film cameras, install flooring in construction sites and plenty more. They're also allowing outside developers to make pre-programmed applications for their robots. That makes it easier for businesses to install a robot without all the technical know-how. South Korea's population is ageing. At the same time, the robots it's developing are getting cheaper and better. This combination puts the country at the forefront of taking robots outside of factory settings, offering a glimpse of what the future could look like. For Ben Jin Kim and his kitchen robots, this means a future where the world of human work is improved by handing the most menial and repetitive tasks to the machines. When you are cooking like 200 patties in an hour, you become exhausted after you cook it. We want humans to do more creative tasks or tasks that require human skills, but those repetitive and boring jobs, I think has to be done by machines or robots for better life for kitchen staff. See, that sounds like an absolutely excellent trip. Yep, it's all uh, cocktail joints and fried chicken for you, Tom. I was starting to get a sense of the real reason you might have pitched this story. Well, look, you've got to get the perks where you can. But in all seriousness, one of the points I heard again and again in my conversations in Korea is that businesses are adopting robots in large part because they simply can't find enough human staff to do the jobs that need doing. 
South Korea has a particularly acute demographic challenge. It has one of the lowest birth rates in the world. But increasingly, this is not a problem unique to Korea. In America, actually, there are currently two vacancies for every unemployed worker, which is the highest rate on record. The manufacturing and hospitality sectors, which a decade ago were swimming in surplus labor, now face labor shortages of 500,000 and 800,000 respectively. So that's a huge challenge that firms are facing. Yeah, so that's all very interesting. But Tom, on a hypothetical note, if I wanted to buy a robot arm to make me fried chicken, how much would that actually set me back? It's an excellent question, Mike. And actually, one of the big reasons behind the growth in robot deployments over the past few years is the fact that they've gotten much cheaper as the industry has developed. There's a lot of variation based on size and so on. But an average basic robotic arm today will set you back somewhere in the twenty dollars to $30,000 range. And 10 to 15 years ago, it would have cost you around two to three times that amount. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if you're willing to fork out 20 to 30K, Mike, but if you wait a few more years, uh, who knows? All right. So the world is suffering from labor shortages. Robots have got much cheaper. Other than inertia, what is holding companies back from simply using the robots to plug those gaps? Well, the cost is one factor. Historically, businesses have also struggled with the fact that robots simply weren't able to do many of the tasks that workers were, and they were also very complicated to deploy. That's changing as well now, though. To get a better idea of how the technology has developed in recent years, I spoke to Kim Paulson, president and CEO of Universal Robots, a robot maker based in Denmark. Kim, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks today. Thank you, Thomas. I'm super happy to be here. So robots have been around for a number of decades now, but the robots that are in operation today are are quite different to the ones that were being deployed early on, you know, in, in previous decades. Could you just tell us a bit about how robots have evolved over time? Sure. So the way you saw robots being deployed at the very beginning, I would say the outset of the robotics history hasn't fundamentally changed over the last 30, 40 years. What has changed is looking at the speed robotics can operate, the precision you can see in today's robotics, doing extremely high-speed type of repeatable production processes. Now, what has also happened over the last 20 years is a different type of robotics has entered the world, which is what we call collaborative robotics. This is a totally different type of robotics where they're safe to be around. We've taken a step forward in making it possible for anybody to use them for their automation needs. So this type of, I would call them next generation robotics has been and is still, I would call a game changer to the robotics industry because suddenly you can solve very different tasks that are more human scale type of automation. And what are some of the types of tasks that robots are capable of performing today? The kind of robotic applications you see today is solving things like doing basic welding applications. You know, you weld a piece of metal all day long. It's the same type of piece of metal you have to do maybe 300, 500 pieces a day. Robotics are really good at this. So repetitive tasks in that sense is really what robotics are designed for in 2023. All right. So the technology has improved. The machines have become much more dexterous. As you think about the types of tasks that robots are capable of performing, how has that broadened over time? 
So new technologies that are coming to life and seen in different kind of industries are every day being applied to robotics to make them more capable of solving more complex tasks in order to augment us humans in, in the day-to-day -day work, especially in manufacturing. One example is three, four years ago, welding wasn't even an option for collaborative robotics because you do need a very high level of precision in how your robot moves around. And the solution here was to apply a similar technique to what you see in your headphones today, where you have noise cancellation. In this case, it was vibration cancellation. So taking that type of technology from one innovation in a different industry and applying it to the robotics suddenly changed the entire game. And now you can do extremely precision type welding with your collaborative robots. What about artificial intelligence? Is that an area of technological innovation in the world of robotics? Applying machine learning and learning algorithms in robotics is definitely a thing. One of the old, I would say, legacy challenges of applying robotics more broadly than it has been today is the notion of variation. Things not being exactly in the same place every time you need to use it. So the slightest variation in the parts you need to pick up or in the, uh, in the surroundings of the robot has always been a challenge. And applying things like machine learning and applying things like vision and perception-based technology can help the robot start to understand its surroundings and solve these kind of problems. And that's going to make a massive difference. So the performance of robots has been improving a lot. I imagine that another barrier for firms is actually having the expertise to deploy one of these. I'm guessing it's not a case of taking it out of the box and pressing the start button. How difficult is it to deploy robots today? The notion of deploying robotics has historically been quite a challenge, actually. And I think that's also has put some level of cap on the adoption of what we can call the conventional industrial robotics. I would say the, the next generation robotics or the so-called collaborative robotics has a different way of working through these kind of problems. Most of these collaborative robotics are created around an ecosystem. So you have an ecosystem of technology companies that create software solutions for the robotics, that create grippers, that create sanding gear, that create aluminum tables, that create conveyor belts that is plug and play with the robots. So you have this entire ecosystem around the robotics that creates you to plug and play the solution you need to have in order to solve your automation problem. So you can solve the problem you need to solve by putting Lego together, so to speak. And clearly there's plenty of people out there that fret about the impact of robots in terms of the prospects for employment of people in impacted industries. As a robot maker, what's your view on that? How would you respond to that concern? I usually start by looking at what is actually happening in the world right now. And to take a statistic, last year in the US, more than 80% of manufacturers say they actually struggle to attract and retain a quality workforce. We also know that, again, a U.S. statistic is that in 2026, the U.S. will need more than 330,000 additional welders that they can't find. So the notion of robotics potentially taking anybody's job is not actually what is happening in reality. It's a absolute necessity to automate because finding qualified workforce and finding workforce in general that want to take on this type of tasks, dull, dangerous, and dirty jobs that robotics do so well, 
the manufacturers out there cannot find the people. So in order to keep productions with an increasing population in the world, there's actually no other way than automation. Kim, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Thank you so much for having me, Thomas. So finally, a mention of the elephant in the room here, the robots coming to steal all of our jobs. Yeah, I was wondering when that was going to come up. Well, you know, the funny thing about this debate is that it's just been going on forever. Back in the early 19th century, you had the Luddites running around burning factory machines. One thing I did for my article, actually, was to look back at the mentions of words like automation and robots over time using this Google tool called Ngrams. And you see that anxieties over this come and go in waves. You had a big spike right after the Second World War when a lot of wartime techniques of mechanization were being deployed into the civilian world. You then had another big spike in the 1980s with the first microprocessors and some of the big early advances in robotics technology. And starting about a decade ago, you start to see another wave gaining momentum. Yeah, it's interesting. This sort of job apocalypse seems to be a recurring fear that sort of comes up time and time again, but it it never really seems to arise. I remember a few years ago, even Andrew Yang was running for the Democratic Party presidential nomination, and he had a proposal to give every American adult $1,000 a month to compensate them for the looming job apocalypse. So it is definitely something that has been getting mainstream attention. I thought Kim made a pretty interesting point there that the types of jobs uh, the robots are often taking are probably not the sort of jobs that most people really want to do. Uh, He used the phrase dull, dangerous and dirty, which I thought captured it pretty neatly. People aren't exactly queuing round the block in much of the world to spend all day drilling rivets into pieces of sheet metal over and over again. I'm personally not going to worry about it until there's a robot that can tell you that European countries need higher retirement ages. Yes, and me neither, unless there is a robot that can write about automation in investing. That was what my piece was about this week. I was also thinking about automation. It was about sort of quant funds particularly, who've been automating their investing process for decades, and many have even dabbled in using AI and machine learning to do it. But the story in the stock market has not been one of the sort of relentless rise of automation at the expense of the humans. Humans have fought back at least a little. So Alice, uh, besides your own piece, which which sounds great and I'm very much looking forward to, what else are you excited to read in this week's paper? I've really been enjoying our coverage of the imminent departure of Li Keqiang, China's Prime Minister, who is about to step down. He was once sort of a contender to be the president, but was ultimately bested by Xi Jinping. What about you, Mike? What are you looking forward to reading this week? It's a long way from my patch, but I'm excited for our coverage of Emmanuel Macron's rather bold attempts to sort of remake the European order and promote the strategic autonomy that he's been sort of banging on about for the past few years. I found the approach that France has taken with regards to the Russian invasion of Ukraine pretty interesting. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to reading what we have to say about that. To read those pieces and much more, you have to be a subscriber to The Economist. Listeners can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And that link is in the notes to this episode. After the break, we'll find out which industries robotics manufacturers are looking to automate next. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter. 
Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Before the break, we heard about the progress that robot technology has made in recent years. The upshot of that is that there are not only far more robots in use today than ever before, but they are also being used in a wider range of places. Uh, Historically, robot use was mostly focused in the auto and electronics industries, but in recent years, we've also seen industries like machine building and food processing becoming enthusiastic adopters as well. That's all well and good, but I'm still waiting to hear more about when the robots will be making me my cocktails. Well, that brings me to an important point, actually, which is that most repetitive manual work today doesn't happen in factories anymore. In fact, there are now more people employed in hospitality than in manufacturing in America, not to mention all the other services industries like healthcare and retail. I do actually have a small amount of experience on this front. When I was in a quarantine hotel in Hong Kong, one of several times, a little robot brought me my food. So it is starting in some circumstances, even if they're rather strange. Yeah, in in slightly more glamorous circumstances, when I was at a Swiss embassy party a few months ago, there was a, a robot serving people fondue, which was rather fun. Well, to find out more about where we're likely to see robots working in the future, I spoke to Suzanne Bieler, who is the General Secretary of the International Federation of Robotics, a global industry group. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks today. My pleasure. So robots have been around for a number of decades now, but recently they've been going through a significant phase of growth. What's behind that? You're fully right. We see a tremendous growth in industrial robot installations. We saw 517,000 new robots being installed in the last year in industrial robotics. That's a growth of 31%. And the long term over the last five years, the growth was at average plus 11%. And we are now talking about roughly 3.5 million industrial robots being used in factories around the globe. The robots are more easy to use nowadays than they have been like five or 10 years ago. And what also helps is the new breed of robot we call collaborative robot that are designed to work next to the worker without fences. These kind of cobots typically came with the easier to use programming tools. So that has opened up the industrial robots to new users and customer groups. So you mentioned there that types of customers who historically were not big users of robots have increasingly been embracing them. What do you see as some of the potential other growth opportunities for robots outside of factories in the years ahead? The largest growth area at the moment is logistics, because, again, we all know the big e-commerce suppliers that heavily invest in automation because they are all lacking staff. So that's not the branches where a lot of people want to work because it's a hard work. It's not work that makes them happy. So there's a lot of movement there. We also see other areas of application in medical and healthcare. 
in cleaning, in maintenance, in inspection, that are these kind of where you either pay high wages or you don't find enough skilled workers. We saw like a plus 85% growth in hospitality. That's robot, for instance, used in restaurants. But it's a slow progress. I think the development is a lot slower than we see in the manufacturing industry where they are traditionally more into technology. They use some kinds of machine over the past decades, but in many areas in the service sector, there hasn't been a tradition of using technology. There was a lot of manual work, a lot of people-to-people -people work. So we have to work more on the attitude where we have to help people embrace the technology. So it sounds like we're in an exciting phase at the moment with lots of change and experimentation. What do you think the world of robots will look like by, say, 2030? So in like 2030, we will see many more robots impacting our daily life in a more direct way. If I go shopping, there probably is a robot there helping me to find the products I'm searching for. There will be uh, robots in the hospitals more often that take over the dull, dirty, dangerous tasks from the nurses. We will have more cleaning robots. I still don't have any robot at home, but I, I think in 2030, I certainly will have a robot at home. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us today on Money Talks. Thank you. So, Alice, Mike, what do you think? Do you fear the robot apocalypse or are you feeling pretty relaxed about it all? I guess sort of reasonably relaxed at the moment, in part because of my favourite stat in your piece, which is that the total spending on industrial robots in 2020 was less than 1% of global capital expenditure, which is less than people spent on sex toys, apparently, which just made me think this sort of tidal wave of robots coming to take our jobs might still be a few years off. But it is interesting to think about what would happen in a world where there was really mass adoption of these kinds of technologies. And it's interesting that this sort of new development seems to be in the service area, because as manufacturing jobs have left sort of richer, higher income countries, a lot of the lower wage jobs in those economies now are service jobs. And that does make me think that, that even if you don't necessarily fear that the robots are going to sort of take all the jobs and, that, and there'll be none left, it's important to think through some of the distributional impacts of an army of service robots. So the productivity gains you get from that transition might in aggregate be a win, but you're likely to create a different kind of job than the jobs that people are currently do. So, you know, maybe people will be sort of babysitting the robots that are doing all these things. And... What we've seen in the US, at least, is that when you get these kind of big transitions in the types of jobs that people are doing, you can actually see sort of certain groups left behind. So the big example that comes to mind is when China joined the World Trade Organization and all these manufacturing jobs left. It was ultimately very beneficial to the US to sort of liberalize trade with China, but there were certain pockets of people that really suffered. So it will be important to think about in what ways the sort of robot job apocalypse might do similar things. And just think some poor statistician that's going to have to spend much of the next decade disaggregating what counts as a sex toy and what counts as a robot <laughs> in the national <laughs> statistics. A grim task. Slightly more seriously, I wasn't alive during the early 19th century, but I think I would have definitely been in the very anti-Luddite camp. I am on basically every issue. Lord Byron, who at the time was a big fan of the Luddites, I think was a better poet than he was a political economist. 
I think the distributional aspects of this are real and you have to take them seriously, but that's something that you engage with after you've allowed the technology to come into existence and then mass use. You don't try and prevent technological process for those reasons. What I do think is going to be really interesting, and Tom got into it a little bit there with Kim, is this sort of intersection of robotics and artificial intelligence, and I think intellectual property as well. Because someone eventually, if you're of an optimistic mindset, is going to crack some sort of combination of these things, and it's going to be enormous, probably within our lifetimes. It's going to be a huge deal when you get the sort of robotics that can operate in a physical world with you know, an ability to learn and understand things. Apple founder Steve Wozniak has a test of artificial intelligence he calls a coffee test. The idea is basically that he'll believe something has real artificial intelligence when you can command it to go into a normal American home, find the coffee and make a cup of coffee for you. Obviously, we are nowhere near that yet. But I think that's the sort of thing where I look at this sort of coverage of robotics and think that could be really transformative and you can sort of see the parts fitting in together and slowly sliding towards that sort of reality. Yes, indeed. When I was in South Korea, they definitely had the coffee-making robots, but for the most part, I was caffeinated by human hands still. But to your point, Alice, around the, the distributional impacts of this, I think it's very real. I think I am, like Mike, in the optimist camp. I think if you reflect on technologies like the spinning jenny or the conveyor belt, they did save a lot of time and human labor, but actually the result of that was higher productivity. And as a result, people got richer, stuff got cheaper, which meant people consumed more, and that kept up the overall demand for labor. Of course, that's cold comfort to all the people whose jobs become redundant, though. No one is employed as an elevator operator anymore, for example. And so I do think the real focus of the debate on automation in the years ahead is is going to need to be on, on how we can help people retrain from those jobs that are being automated away to those that are being created. But I think that's all we have time for today. So with that, shall we pivot to our stats of the week? Yes, we should. And uh, my stat of the week this week is 40%, which is the rate of capital gains tax that President Biden is proposing it should be increased to. So at the moment, capital gains tax is sort of much lower than income tax in America. But this proposal would put it right up at the top rates of income tax and is probably likely to be a controversial political suggestion, which maybe we'll talk about more in the future. Yeah, that's a very clear contrast to Singapore's roughly 0% capital gains tax. <laughs> My statistic of the week is about negative 84%, negative 85%, maybe negative 86%. And I say that because the market is still open. But that is now the share price performance of Credit Suisse, the bank, over the last five years, which is just utterly miserable. Latest Credit Suisse news, for those of you who haven't seen it, is they've had to delay putting out their annual report for what they describe as technical reasons. Well, that uh, that certainly sounds very ominous. Perhaps we need to just automate away Credit Suisse. Maybe they need some more <laughs> robots to come and fix all of their problems. So my start of the week is 108 
billion. And that is the monthly value of construction in America's manufacturing sector as of the beginning of this year. And that is actually up a whopping 90% on the prior year. So since around 2015 until kind of last year, factory construction was basically flat in America, despite all of the growing talk of offshoring. But we are now starting to see some momentum there. Now, it's not yet translated into any kind of meaningful increase in manufacturing production in the States, which is still below its pre-financial crisis level. And partly that's because these things take time to come online, but partly it's also because a lot of that activity is concentrated in a pretty narrow set of sectors like semiconductors and electric vehicles that are really awash in in subsidies at the moment. But it will be interesting to watch how that evolves, particularly as all the manufacturers jump aboard the robot train. Yeah, I would love to see a subsidy-adjusted number for that that accounts for the fact that there is a very large amount of money being given to some very big Taiwanese companies to go and build factories in the (laughs) desert in the U.S., Well, with that, I would like to thank Andy Scanlon, Kim Paulson, and Suzanne Beeler. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howe. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. I'm Alice Forward. And this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.